past our start point, so I suppose we should go ahead and get started. Thank you for joining us. We're recording this for the podcast series as usual, so let me just introduce this as the April 10th, 2017 Gear Book Talk session, and today's theme is His and Hers, Two Married Library Coworkers, and and Where We Converge and Where We Diverge. With that, let's get started on today's talk, and I'll turn it over to my wife, Becky, from Walls Branch. All right. Well, I'm going to launch into um, actually saying that I had somehow ended up with a couple of different themes over the past year or so, which I didn't realize at the time. I just ended up, somehow I'm just making themes out of things. And my first theme was Swedish authors. (laughs) I'm not not sure how that occurred, but this was the first thing that caught my eye. A man called Uva. That's the pronunciation. Uva. (laughs) And this is by Frederick Bachman, and he has written several novels by this point. Um, This one I had seen going across, you know, being checked in and out, and I had heard, just vaguely heard about it, you know, this is supposed to be a good novel. And um, so I'm like, I think I want to check this out. And it was on hold forever when it first got into the library system. And then I saw a compact disc edition of it go by, and I snagged it. There were no holds on that. And I actually really enjoyed it. It's narrated by George Newbern, the actor. He's been in things like the remake of Father of the Bride and all different things. And I think he's on a TV series. Um, But he did a good job of characterizing each character's voice and so forth. But it's pretty much a tale about what people would think of as a curmudgeon or a grumpy old man or whatever you want to call him. And um, his responses to the world around him and how you need to really look under the surface of people if you want to get to know their story. It's a story about a lot of loss and overcoming loss. It's a love story. It's a story about friendship, you know, and how friendships get broken and then get healed again. It's about the old ways versus the new ways, you know, what's what's an iPad? <laughs> Things like that. But what I thought was interesting to me as I started listening to it was how there were so many similarities in my thinking and Uva's thinking, the Swedish elderly man character and me, an American middle-aged woman. I'm like, well, that's interesting. But I stuck with it, and I'm really glad I did. And then there is a movie of it. I don't know if any of you went to the Ross and saw it. And, of course, they have to kind of pretty much truncate, um, you know, condense everything for that. And so I was a little bit disappointed. But Scott saw the movie before he read the book. I saw the movie before I read the book. And then reading the book later, I think they did a pretty good job of, of hitting the salient points. And, you know, there's, there's humor, there's a lot of grief, there's, there's all kinds of range of emotions and range of people that Uva interacts with. So I just highly recommend it. And then the next one of his that I've read is this novella, And Every Morning the Way Home Gets Longer and Longer. And he says in his introduction that he didn't even really intend to publish it. He was just trying to get down his thoughts about what it's like to deal with losing a person who's physically still here, but not mentally. And I can certainly relate to that in my own family, and I'm sure most of you have by now as well. And it's a little tricky when you first start. You're a little bit confused about who's talking or who we're we're talking about or whatever. So it's kind of going between the mind of this older man 
who's got some dementia and it's progressing. And then we have interactions between he and his grandson, Noah, and he and his wife, and he and his son. So you're looking at all these different relationships in this man's life and also how his thought processes are being affected and how he's struggling to cope with that. You know, he knows something's wrong and how he's, you know, he feels bad and his family's trying to figure out what's best to do for him and how to help him through this journey. So I highly recommend that as well. And what I ended up doing was just reading small portions two or three times as I went just to absorb the thoughts and the emotions and so forth. And I think on both of these, the English, whoever, you know, the people that did the English translations did a great job. I don't know any Swedish, so I wouldn't be able to tell. But <laughs> And, Bach, and then, <laughs> Bachman has become sort of a best-selling author here in the U.S. Yeah. now, and these are not the only ones that have been translated. There's at least two others that have also made the bestseller list, so um, plenty more where they came from, I guess. Then my third Swedish one, and I, this, this, the title just caught me. The 100-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out the Window and Disappeared by Jonas Jonasson, a good Swedish name. <laughs> but I thought, now what on earth could that be about? So I read the blurb, and I'm like, okay, I'll give it a try. And it is, you know, kind of in the same vein of any of you have seen Forrest Gump or Zelig by Woody Allen. It's how this central character kind of affects the course of history and meets famous people and so forth. That's woven into the story of Alan Carlson. Um, he's supposed to be having a, a birthday party for his 100th birthday at the care facility where he lives. And he doesn't like the manager of the facility. He gets kind of restless from time to time. He's just like, oh, I'm just going to crawl out the window into the flower bed and go off to the bus station, which he proceeds to do in his slippers, <laughs> and um, while he's waiting for his bus to take him wherever his, you know, however many kroner will take him, um, there's a very nervous, agitated young man who needs to use the restroom and has a big suitcase and asks Alan to watch the suitcase for him. Kind of demands so, that so he So yes, he does, yes. And Alan's bus comes, and the man hasn't come out of the bathroom, so Alan takes the suitcase with him on the bus, and <laughs> away it goes. <laughs> and you, we run into uh, kind of a crazy cast of characters, including a stolen elephant, a wannabe motorcycle gang, uh, <laughs> a guy who's got about... 15 different college degrees, but not quite, because he keeps, so that he can stay in school, he has to change majors. <laughs> and, you know, away, along the way, a few people die, and that's maybe not such a bad thing altogether. But it kind of echoes back and forth between the current time and Alan's hundred years of life as it went by in the past. And he intersects with people like Harry Truman, and this, some people are real, but then he's got this relationship with Albert Einstein's witless brother, Herbert. <laughs> so it's just, I found myself laughing every few he, pages. He is also a self-taught <laughs> explosives expert, yes. which comes into the that's plot kind repeatedly. Of, that's so. kind of the crux of how he gets around the world and meets all these different important people. <laughs> and that is also 
made into a movie. And of course, they really have to truncate that, but it's, it's just really kind of a hoot. I haven't read the book, but she did show me the movie, and I, I enjoyed that very much. And it was fascinating to see after we watched the movie and went back to watch the extra features on the DVD, like the making of documentaries and stuff, that it's the same actor playing the guy at 100 with heavy makeup as in his younger ages, and, and it really did look to me like it was like a father and son that had done it or something like that. So they did a remarkably good job of... of I mean, he doesn't... To me, he didn't really look... 100, but at the same time, he looked very old, and um, it was just amazing the kinds of things that they were able to pull off. So. Yeah, what the movie didn't quite capture for me was the gist that Alan really could care less about politics. He tunes people out when they start talking about politics, but yet he keeps getting involved with people like Stalin and Mao and all, all these political people. So, uh, Since she had a theme, I will quick rapidly go through part of my theme here as well. I'm not going to hit everything that's on my list. I, that just happens to be everything that I've been reading lately, and so they're all things that I would recommend. But here are some things I'll, I'll, I'll make some comments on. I'm going to jump straight to my audiobooks section because I've been enjoying audiobooks lately. So, And I'm just going to run through these fairly quickly. Um, the one I most recently finished was an um, autobiography by Anna Kendrick, the actress, called Scrappy Little Nobody. Uh, Anna Kendrick has um, become kind of uh, a hot figure in Hollywood right now, but uh, it took her a while to actually get noticed by the industry. Uh, most recently, she th things that you might recognize her from, she was uh, opposite George Clooney in Up in the Air. Uh, she was Cinderella in the musical Into the Woods. Uh, she's done a number of other things um, recently. She for the teen for the teens. She was one of the figures in the Twilight movies. Oh, the Pitch Perfect. And the, oh, the Pitch Perfect movies. acapella musician yeah. group. Uh, those were great. Um, she has a, an extremely sarcastic sense of humor. Uh, she's very um, unserious about herself. In other words, she mocks herself repeatedly. She, in some ways, can't believe that she's been as successful as she is, and that comes through in her autobiography very strongly. I highly recommend the audio version of this because she is the one that's actually reading it, and I took a quick look, glance at the print copy when one um, came across the desk, in comparison to the audio version, you really don't get that personality coming through in the print edition. In the audio version, when she has these little quick asides where she rapidly speaks as if she's telling you a secret or something like that, you can just tell her personality is just coming through in the way that she performs um, her own uh, material. Uh, so I, I recommend the audiobook of, of that. At the same time, however, uh, she is one of a younger generation that is a little freer with the language, and I would say that this is easily a PG-13 or R- um, rating in terms of some of the terminology that she uses and the fact that she has one entire chapter talking about her sexual awakenings. Uh, I also uh, recently listened to the audiobook version of Anne Frank, Diary of a Young Girl. At the age of 53, I still had not read that book, um, despite the fact that, as my wife pointed out, they didn't make you read that in school, and it's like, no, they didn't. I knew what it was, I knew what it was about, but I had never actually read it. And I saw the audio version um, on the shelves at Ben and Martin, and it was described as the definitive edition. And I did a little digging and discovered that over the years, multiple different versions of this book have been released, both in print and audio. And this particular version, which came out about seven years ago approximately, is supposedly everything that they have been able to find, including sections that have been edited out of previous versions. 
the the narrator is Selma Blair, the actress who at this point is probably in her thirties, would oh, be my I'd guess. Have to be, yeah. um, and uh, Becky made a comment when we were listening to one of the discs in the car at one point that um, it really needed to be read by a teenage girl. Oh, yeah. And I, I would agree. I enjoyed this audio production very much, and uh, if you have not read this in a while and um, are, are curious about it again and want to not physically read it but listen to it, I would recommend this because it was extremely well done, but there is that one slight drawback. Um, the next one, I don't have a library copy uh, with me, but I did uh, buy this one myself. Uh, obviously, people are aware that Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia from the Star Wars movies, passed away in the end of December. Uh, her last book came out shortly before that, and she was kind of getting ready to start a tour to promote it when she passed away. Uh, I have enjoyed the audiobook versions of her two earlier autobiographies, uh, Shockaholic and Wishful Drinking, in which she goes into great detail about the various uh, mental and uh, substance Addiction. abuse issues that she's had over the years. And, and some of those touched on then her bizarre family background with unbelievable amounts of um, paparazzi and stuff like that. The Princess Diarist is a little different. Uh, it, it, I think people complained that she didn't talk enough about Star Wars, not like she wanted to talk a lot about Star Wars. She'd be happy to leave it in the background. But in going through her papers, she found a spiral notebook in which she had been keeping notes while she filmed Star Wars, and she had forgotten that she had even done this notebook, and so she basically used that as a launching platform for The Princess Diarist. She herself, Carrie, narrates the contemporary versions where she's looking back at things and talking about other things going on in her life. And then her daughter, Billy Lord, who is uh, an actress in her own right, narrates the sections of the journal as they were written by Carrie back in 1976. So um, it's, it's fascinating. It was kind of uh, bittersweet to listen to it because she had just died two weeks before I started listening to it. Um, but at the same time, her personality just oozes out of every uh, filament of this particular recording. And, and once again, this is another one where I would recommend the audio over the print version, although, to be honest, the print version has sections of photographs, which you don't get with the audio version. So one of my co-workers recommended Enough About Me, a memoir by Burt Reynolds, um, and she suggested listening to it in the audio version. I had not really given Burt Reynolds a lot of serious thought. He always seemed like sort of a lightweight actor, but the more I look at uh, his career after listening to this audio, I actually do respect him a lot more, and he as narrator of this autobiography, does a remarkable job. Uh, Becky said, what, how did you put it, that his age is showing, that his oh, voice yeah, is his going? Oh, yeah, his voice is much more frail than... But I, in some ways, because he's looking back at an entire lifetime's career, appreciated that that was the voice that was speaking to me. Uh, and it's also very evident, as he's going, going over a lot of the elements in his um, past history, that he's very emotional about things. And the audio version, you can tell that he's almost on the verge of tears at times while he's reading his own words. So if you have even the vaguest interest in Burt Reynolds, I recommend his... Or all the people he or knew. Or the, all the people he knew. Um, and he talks with total honesty about all the relationships that he self-sabotaged and that he wished had, had gone differently and also the people that he thinks <laughs> did him wrong um, as well. So it, it's, it's a very honest um, portrayal of his life. And if you are interested, I recommend the audio version of it. Uh, I will skip the Fox and O'Hare novel. Uh, anybody who's a Janet Ivanovich um, fan is probably already reading that particular series. And Scott Brick, the narrator, is one of my favorite audiobook readers. 
I don't have the Dick Van Dyke with me. It's the second of his autobiographies. The first is truly just a showbiz autobiography talking about his career. This one is more sort of philosophical, talking about the process of getting older and his, his philosophy of don't stop moving, keep doing things, dance every day, sing every day, be goofy. Uh, don't, don't give up those kinds of features um, as you're getting older, and, and, and he really does come across very nicely with that. I'll, I only brought two... CDs uh, as opposed to audiobooks, uh, music CDs. I'll really quick hit them. I stumbled across this and, and I'm surprised I've never come across it before uh, because uh, my theater friends are hugely um, big fans of this particular series. It's called Forbidden Broadway, which is sort of an off-Broadway show in which they take popular musical numbers, rewrite the lyrics, and do parodies of them. And the Forbidden Broadway series um, on CD, we only have this one volume, which is a 20th anniversary set um, here in the library's collection, uh, as a physical copy. However, our Hoopla downloadable um, audio files have every single um, Forbidden Broadway album that has been released. So if you like parodies, if you like Broadway songs, but you want to um, have a poke a little fun at them, I would highly recommend sampling either this CD or doing the downloaded um, Hoopla audio files as well. They're, they're hilarious. They're not big-name um, actors doing it. It's, it's lesser-known people, um, so it's not like they got the people that originally sang the songs, but it's a lot of fun. And last but not least, I can't recommend highly enough the soundtrack to Hamilton, um, I know people at our Bethany book talk were saying, I just don't get it. I don't understand why this is so popular. <laughs> the first time I listened to the soundtrack to Hamilton, it's not like I've seen the show or anything. It struck me as odd because it's, it's, it's not exactly rap. It's more hip-hop is what they would call it. And it's not a style you would think of for an American historical drama. However, after I listened to it once, looked at the liner notes for the album so I could understand some of the lyrics that went by at rapid fire pace, and went back and started listening to it a second and a third time, this is a powerful piece of work. There, there are some songs in here that bring me to tears when I listen to them again and again. So uh, if you haven't seen the documentary that PBS did uh, as part of their, I think it was a, not American Masters, but one of those oh, kinds yeah. of things, it's aired a couple times on the local PBS station, and I believe it's also available for streaming on their website. Uh, it is highly worth watching. It does not include full music in any way, but there's long snippets of several of the songs from there. And, and although this is my personal copy, feel free to take a look at some of the track titles. Um, the library has it, and it is so popular that there's just a constant stream of holds waiting to be filled on Hamilton, the soundtrack. So what would you like to talk about? I'm going to just go through my list here. Go still. for it. Um, my next one I want to talk about is a Larry McMurtry. Um, he calls it an essay. To me, it's kind of a sort of a memoir. Um, it's kind of a combination of those things. But the title caught my eye for one thing, but I have really enjoyed the nonfiction books that he has written so far. I'm not really much into his fiction. I know that I was, I had a class where we read The Last Picture Show and then went to see the movie and I hated both of those. But, <laughs> but I love Lonesome Dove, the miniseries in the series. And then when he had put out a couple of memoirs, one was called Books, but I find him to be a very skilled writer, but yet folksy. He has a wonderful way with phrasing. He has a humongous vocabulary. I learn a new word or like several new words every time I pick up one of his books. Uh, this is kind of an exploration of the decline of storytelling and storytellers 
as they're thought of in, in historical context, uh, oral narrative, if you like. But the title stems from him going back for a centennial celebration in Archer County, where he grew up. Um, and Archer City is the closest town to the ranch where he lived. Um, and he was just at the local Dairy Queen having coffee or something to eat and had just acquired a recently translated book of Walter Benjamin's works. Walter Benjamin is a real person. His full name is Walter Bendix Schönflies Benjamin from 1892 to 1940. He was a Jewish-German philosopher, critic, and essayist, and he was had become somewhat well-known at the time of his death for just kind of introducing mixtures of thinking, combining Romanticism, Marxism, Jewish mysticism, different things. He had exiled himself from Germany because of the whole Nazi regime and ended up committing suicide because he feared that he was close to being captured and he did not want to live through that. And so he's, he had many works published before he uh, killed himself. And so Larry McMurtry, being such a well-read person and a critic himself and an author, just kind of gravitated toward this. And so he's just sitting in the Dairy Queen reading this book of essays about, you know, uh, Benjamin's thoughts on the storytelling tradition and whatever. And so Larry himself then tries to explore these things. But at the same time, he's giving us a very detailed background of his family's life and his own as pretty much pioneers in the Texas ranch land, which is very barren, very insulated, I would say. So uh, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're interested in anything about native history, you know, like the his native history of an area, if you like McMurtry's other works, and he also talks about his book selling book acquiring proclivities too because he at one point his bookstore in Archer City was four buildings full of books so that's like 400 to 500,000 books that he had collected so it's kind of a fascinating cultural treasure <laughs> and then I'm going to really, really quick mention this novel by Karen Tanabe called The Gilded Years it is based on an actual person who was the first woman with uh, Negro blood to attend and graduate from Vassar. But it was not known at the time because she had to try to pass. So then years later, all this is found out and whatever. And so Karen Tanabe kind of takes this and imagines her own version of that. And so this is a young lady who's very beautiful very smart, very talented, and how she has to keep this secret for four years so that she can graduate and try to improve her life. Her roommate exposed her to the administrators and so forth, and I think it actually got into the paper in that area. I, I actually wish that someone would go and do a lot more research of whatever they could find, because apparently there's she, she got married, and then they both passed as white so that their children didn't even realize it until their children were adults. Yeah, it's crazy, but it's very intriguing. I got on a mini Beatles theme 
for <laughs> a little while. And these are young adult novels. And I would encourage anybody to try out something. That, that's a big field in publishing right now is young adult items. You know, it's stuff like Twilight and The Hunger Games and things like that. But there's a variety of different things. And these are all, I would say, the light, you know, mostly humorous. But they're about angsty teenage things like romance and school and different things. But they, they caught my eye because I love the Beatles. And so there's the Lonely Hearts Club, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We can work it out. <laughs> and these are by the same author, and they feature the same characters. Penny Lane Bloom, who hates that her parents named her that, <laughs> who starts, who gets disgusted with uh, a boyfriend's treatment of her and starts a Lonely Hearts Club for girls only. And then they let in a boy or two, and then they loosen up the rules because she really likes a guy, and he really likes her, and so they want to get together and not be <laughs> restricted. So it's kind of just a high school adventure in that regard. But this is a girl who's, who really figures out how to stand up for herself and do her own thing and everything. And so I think that's pretty resonant with today's climate of you know, tolerance and, and be your own, you know, be yourself. And then the one that I just finished a couple weeks ago is called Beetle Meets Destiny. It's set in Australia, which was kind of fun. So that's a little bit different. You get a little bit different terminology and so forth. This is by Gabrielle Williams. And our main characters are an 18-year-old boy named John Lennon, on purpose. So he's nicknamed Beetle who just by happenstance meets up with a girl named Destiny McCartney. <laughs> so they kind of explore that whole thing like, oh, is it destiny? Is it fate? Um, one of the problems with this relationship is that he has a girlfriend already. He doesn't tell Destiny this. Um, she basically has to find it out through a weird series of circumstances. He has also had a stroke about two years prior to the story, I believe it was drug-related, unfortunately, um, but kind of, you know, as a cautionary tale in that regard. So it's kind of this balancing act of him really liking this new girl and what do I do with my wonderful girlfriend, and then Destiny and her BFFs are kind of uh, scamps. They get into some trouble with a peeping Tom who likes to steal underwear. Um, they kind of commit a crime, not on purpose, by stealing someone's chair, fancy tapestry chair. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of a kind of a fun, quirky adventure and you know ultimately about young love and romance and what it's like to be a teen and try you know again, try to kind of forge your own way, be yourself. Um, in a similar fashion, although completely differently. <laughs> Uh, here is one that is a Newbery Honor book. Uh, it's by C.C. Bell, and it is titled El Defo. It is actually a, a youth graphic novel. It's classified in the uh, juvenile fiction section, um, but it's appropriate for pretty much any age. Uh, C.C. Bell, the author slash artist, is sort of telling a somewhat autobiographical tale. Um, the character that um, is the central figure in the um, graphic novel is also Cece. Uh, it is told with um, 
animal type figures, uh, talking animals, so it is uh, um, obviously oriented towards a young readership with regards to that appeal. The, the theme is that uh, C.C. Bell, the artist, uh, is deaf, essentially, um, has very limited hearing, and as she was growing up, she had to wear a audio assistive device. It was basically like this. Uh, she, she had earphones that she listened to and teachers in classes that she went to had to wear a microphone so that uh, she could understand what the teacher was saying. Otherwise it was just like little whispers and she couldn't make anything out. This novel talks about her getting used to using this new equipment. Uh, she the, was very young when she started. The cliques of kids that she either basically they pick on her or that become friends with her. The people that want to be her friends but are afraid of doing something that might hurt her. It's really a, a nutshell version of what growing up is like. It's just that there's the additional issues of her being deaf. There's a lot of humor in this. Uh, Becky pointed out in our Bethany book talk that one of the um, key scenes is that uh, after being somewhat ostracized, she suddenly becomes the in-person when uh, she and the other students realize that the teacher, when the teacher leaves the room, doesn't turn the microphone off. And so when the teacher says at the door, now I'm going to be gone for the next 10 minutes, you all study and be good, they all start having a party because they know that she can hear what the teacher is doing halfway down the hall and she can alert them when the teacher's on the way back. So she, she is not a pure as the driven snow child by any means, uh, but it, it really is a story about friendships made, friendships broken, what it's like to grow up, especially when you've got uh, something that could be considered a handicap under the circumstances. So we both enjoyed this one. So. Very touching, very, very informative as well. Um, I'm going to jump into the, this one that Scott read first and then um, sh passed on to me called Bluffton because, he passed it to me because one of the central characters is the young Buster Keaton. And I love Buster Keaton. I absolutely love Buster Keaton. But this is about a boy, um, is it Michigan? Growing up in Michigan where a lot of the vaudeville troops would go for summer time vacation. Um, up near lakes and things. And so our uh, young protagonist meets Buster Keaton and all his vaudeville pals. And they go fishing and go swimming and do different things. And so I really enjoyed it. I think you enjoyed it maybe I, even more than I, I did. I had started by reading a different graphic novel by the same uh, youth um, author, Matt Phelan. Both of these are on my uh, stapled together handout. I had read Snow White, a graphic novel in which he takes the standard well-known tropes of the Snow White storyline, transfers them to 1930s uh, New York City, tells it all in black and white watercolored <laughs> illustrations. Uh, the, the evil queen becomes a star on Broadway. Snow White is the young gal that potentially could be usurping her um, stardom. The, the seven dwarves are actually seven street urchins who are all orphans and are basically a gang that um, ends up protecting Snow White from uh, muggers, essentially. It was, it was extremely well told. It was extremely well illustrated. And I thought after I was done reading that, what else has this guy done? I, I've got to track more stuff down by this Matt Phelan. Um, and so checking our catalog first, I discovered that he had done the illustrations for several juvenile picture books, I mean, aimed at really young kids. I really went, didn't want to go that direction. And then this Bluffton stood out as, oh, that's actually classified as a novel. It is a graphic novel. It is basically watercolor illustrations. Mm -hmm. But 
it is a mixture of fiction and, and um, real life in that Buster Keaton and his family did summer every year at this place up in Wisconsin, Bluffton. And the central character is the fictional part where he's made up and is interacting with the real life figures. But there's a nice little afterward at the end which the author talks about the research that he did and and finding out all the things um, about Buster Keaton and his experiences there. And that years later, Buster looks back and realizes that some of the happiest times of his life were the times that he spent up there. I liked the last two pages of the book, especially because there's just a nice a little emotional zinger at the end uh, that if you've read the whole thing, you will enjoy very much. The art isn't 100% great. At times, it's like, well, that doesn't look right. But when they do get it right, it's astonishing how he manages to capture the essence of the planes of Buster Keaton's face um, as a teenager and make you recognize that character in just a few brushstrokes. So. Excellent work on both of those particular graphic novels. Okay, I'm going to get into some DVDs, and I just skim over them a little bit. Um, We both enjoy animated movies quite a lot. In a way, to me, they're much better than a lot of the live-action movies that come out anymore. (laughs) And we did just go see the the new Beauty and the Beast, and it was all right. I liked it okay. It was better than I was expecting it to be. But I absolutely love the 91 Disney, Beauty and the Beast. That's got to be one of my favorite animated films ever. So I would highly recommend that to anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, Finding Dory is the sequel to Finding Nemo. So that's with um, Ellen DeGeneres as Dory. Very cute. Moana um, just came out on DVD, I think. And I did not know that Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, could sing so nicely. Because it is a musical. (laughs) The Secret Life of Pets, if you haven't seen that, is really cute, really funny. Uh, Sing is also animals who sing and have adventures and whatnot. And trolls, I don't like troll dolls at all, I never did. But I thought we'd give this movie a try, and it's really pretty cute. And again, it's very musical, but I think any of these movies, and the, the trend toward animated movies is to make sure there's stuff for the adults in there as well as for the kids to comprehend. And so it's like the Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, as a kid you're like, that's pretty funny, look at that action, whatever, and then you're like, as you're getting, huh, I see the adult humor in there too. So. And Trolls, uh, just tying back into my autobiography stuff, uh, stars Anna Kendrick <laughs> as the main female character. So. And then a couple of adult movies, um, if anybody hasn't seen Arrival yet with Amy Adams, um, that's really good. It's, it's very serious science fiction. Um, it's very emotional. And I think that makes it even more you know, plausible as maybe this could really happen this way someday. What it, it's not an action-oriented story. It is a, it's more cerebral. It is a thinking story featuring uh, two people who basically are there to do translation as opposed to fight or, or negotiate or something like that. And so it's having to create a, a, means, a means of understanding an alien language completely. So. Um, I love the original Ghostbusters, and so I was like, when they said they were making remaking it with female cast, I'm like, what? And so we went, and it was okay. I, I liked it quite a bit, but to me, it's there's apples and oranges. You know, it's just like they should have, what Scott emphasizes when he talks about it is they should have just said, these are the children of these original characters and gone from there instead of trying to remake everything. 
And then, I don't know if anybody here has seen the Sharknado movies, that's kind of a guilty pleasure. They are working on Sharknado 5. <laughs> so that's just kind of a popcorn and, you know, chips movie. <laughs> and then there's a couple of cool TV series that I really enjoy. Brain Games, I don't know if anybody's seen that. Those are 30-minute episodes on a theme, things like um, what do facial expressions tell you? How does the brain distinguish colors? Different. They're pretty fascinating. And so there's a selection of, I think, three episodes on this one that the library owns, Brain Games, and it's by National Geographic Channel. And it's a series that's lasted like five or six years, so there's a lot of episodes out there on the Internet as well. And then here's a History Channel program called How the States Got Their Shapes. So that gives you some fascinating little tidbits about... You know, well, why does the corner of Connecticut do that? <laughs> the hosts of both of these are very appealing. You know, it's not all, they, they put humor into it. You know, and the Brain Games actually gives you little on-screen tests through every episode. So those are both fun. And then I think back to you. Okay. Since she did DVDs, I'll do DVDs very quickly. One that I watched on my own and then decided that I really would like to have Becky watch as well was Chef, starring and written, written and directed by Jean Favreau, uh, which is, in a nutshell, uh, an L.A. high-end chef, essentially, uh, sort of burns his bridges behind him uh, when a restaurant that he's been working for isn't allowing him to be creative, be creative, push the boundaries of his cooking and, and try new things that they want the same menu every single day. Um, and so he sort of uh, ends up alienating a bunch of people in the Los Angeles area and, and uh, his son who has been convincing him to get into social media with things like Twitter and Facebook, he gets a Twitter account and he sends a very hostile message to a critic that savaged him, um, not realizing that everybody in the entire world could see that message. He thought it was a private message uh, to, to the guy. So he really does uh, sort of uh, lay the groundwork for not having a lot of friends left in Los Angeles. His ex-wife has access to some money and wants to help him get started on something that will help him be creative again. So she helps him buy a food truck, uh, basically a taco truck kind of thing, that's in Miami. So he has to go to Miami, uh, discovers that he's going to have to rehab the food truck. It's the summer, so his son is off of school, and his old sous chef, um, good friend played by uh, John Leguizamo, um, comes along. The three of them rehab this truck, and then the, the core of the movie is a cross-country trip from one community to another on the way back to Los Angeles, because that's where he's going to be basing himself. But every community that they go to, they they serve their food. They uh, study the local cuisine. His son, who is like a 10 or 11-year-old, is actually strongly into social media and helps promote his dad's culinary journey ahead of themselves. So to, by the point that they're getting to places like New Orleans, they're having huge crowds show up because their reputation is preceding them. It, it's, it's a nice character study. If you like cooking, because cooking shows are a huge thing nowadays, uh, there's a lot of elements of cooking and what's important about cooking and why it's important to these characters. I will say that uh, there is some language issues. It's another one. Basically, it has an R rating, and there's a reason for that. Uh, so if you're um, offended by language, that could be an issue. But it, I found it to be a fascinating little story. 
Last five years is a Broadway show turned into a movie. Um, in fact, the Broadway show, uh, a two-person musical, was just recently produced uh, at the Tada Theater in downtown Lincoln here. Um, so if you've seen that, this is an interesting um, take on that. Anna Kendrick, yes, her again. Um, and Jeremy Jordan, who is currently starring in uh, Supergirl on, on television, uh, basically play a pair of characters who have a five-year relationship that ends up breaking up. That's not so unusual. What's unusual is the way the story is told. The timelines are going in opposite directions. So as we begin the movie, her character is dealing with having met him for the first time and be, be, becoming involved with his character and, and starting to have emotional feelings for him. His character is singing his songs from the end of their five-year relationship when everything is broken apart. As the, the movie progresses, they come closer and closer to the middle where they're at the same time and then as you get towards the end of the movie, his character is back to when it all began and hers is getting to the end of their relationship. So it's, it's a very creative way of telling the story and the performances are superb. However, you know going into it that you're dealing with a relationship that's breaking up so there's that sort of negative drawback to it um, right off the bat. Speaking of animated films, um, as Becky did, um, this is one that I watched that she hasn't. When, when you think of animated films, you think Disney, you think Pixar, which is now a Disney uh, subsidiary. This is actually by some independent Belgian company, but the quality of the animation and the storytelling in this um, rivals the Disney stuff. It, it was really well done. It's called The Wild Life. It is basically the Robinson Crusoe story uh, told in which Robinson Crusoe gets <laughs> stranded on this island and, and builds his own shelter, um, etc. However, because this is a kid's movie, the animals all talk. They don't talk to the human, he doesn't understand them, but all the animals talk to each other, and they basically grudgingly befriend this human being, and there are villains uh, in the form of a group of cats uh, that got left behind by a pirate ship, which breed and turn into dozens and dozens of cats who want to take over the island and get rid of everybody else. So there's, there's a threat, but it is funny, it's got really strong characterizations, and the animation is is. Perfect. I mean, it was just absolutely marvelous animation, which for a lot of non-Disney companies I don't expect, but this, this one was excellent. Really quick, there is a upper-tier cable channel called Hallmark Movies and Mysteries. It's not the Hallmark Channel, it's the Hallmark Movies and Mysteries channel, which airs um, a lot of repeats of things like Murder, She Wrote and stuff like that. But they also produce a lot of original things. Right now, they have a whole series of mystery adaptations or mystery movies, kind of like the old days of NBC Mystery Movie when it was McLeod and McMillan and Wife and stuff like that, where every week you had a different thing. All of their sleuths are women, who have male sidekicks, so that's kind of cool. Uh, and some of them are actually based on works of existing literary nature. Uh, some of them are not. There's like a flower shop uh, mysteries, there's an antique dealer's mystery, a garage sale mystery. All of those are original for the screen. However, these two, the Aurora Tea Garden mysteries, are based on Charlene Harris's series of novels featuring a librarian who turns into a sleuth. They star Candace Cameron Bure, and they are excellent. Uh, there have been five or six of them so far. And there's also the Murder, She Baked series based on Joanne Fluke's culinary series featuring Hannah Swenson. Um, and Allison Sweeney is the sleuth in that one. Both of these series are my favorites of all of the series that they're doing on Hallmark Movies and Mysteries. And I believe at this point the library has only bought 
selections from those two series on DVD. The others you pretty much have to catch on television. So on the Aurora Tea Garden, has anybody seen Murdoch Mysteries? Yes. Okay. Yannick Bisson is in these movies. Thank and you. He, he, he doesn't join the cast until like the third or fourth of them, but then he becomes a regular. So those are, those are a hoot. I, I love both of them. Uh, we have more than just those single volumes in the DVD collections of the libraries. Last but not least on DVD. Back in January, I w had a day off. I was trying to catch up on some DVDs that I had at home, and I stuck this one in the DVD player. It is called The Last Man on the Moon, and is a biography of Gene Cernan, the astronaut. I was watching this, enjoying it very much. It's a very emotional and, and um, engaging um, biography of him. And it locked up in my DVD player. I thought, okay, I'm going to try it in my computer. And ultimately, it did work in my computer, so I was able to watch the whole thing. But while I'm waiting, before I put it in the computer, I, boy, Gene looks great in this documentary. I'm going to see what he's up to. So I went online. He had died that morning, that very day that I was watching the documentary. So I have a very Twilight Zone feel about watching this. But nonetheless, we both ended up watching it um, together um, for me a second time and it is it is a superbly well done documentary about the space program and about his particular involvement in it and how important it was to him that he went on to becoming basically a speaker and an, an ambassador for space exploration um, and he literally is the last man to have had a human foot on the surface of the moon so that's why the title is that very illustrative of the experience you know the experience in general of being an astronaut especially in that time when you know the moon was the goal so. and my favorite moment is he pulls up in his pickup truck to the old neighborhood in Houston where he used to live and just stands there leans against his pickup truck and talks to the person that's filming him about looking up and down the street and pointing at the various houses and saying so-and-so lived there all, all these astronauts that all owned houses in, in this street in Houston all at the same time, these giants of American scientific exploration, all just living in these little stucco mm -hmm. <laughs> suburban houses. It was like, cool. So. We gotta finish up here. Yeah. My third theme, which kind of was a loose theme, apparently was titles with numbers in the title. <laughs> so I have the 100-year-old man. I have 100 photographs. And Time Magazine um, commissioned this online project to pick out 100, the 100 most significant photographs in terms of what they represent or how they affected people or policies or anything like that. And what caught my eye, and I actually saw something online referring to it, what caught my eye was The Milk Drop by Harold Edgerton, who's, if you know, is from Nebraska, but who went on to become a completely, completely famous MIT professor. So he pretty much brought us into the modern age of photography with strobe photography and stop motion and so forth. The other things you might, I don't know if you can see them from here, is the Dorothea Lang famous um, dust bowl photograph of the lady and her kids. Here's Muhammad Ali winning one of his fights. Here are the Beatles romping around in a hotel room. Here's the famous girder, guys eating lunch on the girder picture. Um, and that actually, I did not know, was staged by the company constructing the building. So there's these photographers up on these girders with these guys eating lunch. So here's this guy holding a camera, no rope, nobody holding on to his back, nothing. <laughs> so these, these are some very iconic things and some that I actually had not been familiar with. 
But here's the marvelous Abraham Lincoln by Matthew Brady, famous Civil War photographer. Um, but it's got different people and different events. It does get to be kind of depressing because a lot of it's about wars and you know assassinations and so forth. But here's here's the Betty Grable pinup that all the GIs had. Um, so it's kind of pretty cool to go through this and just get the little bits of history and um, how they were made. This is the first known photograph printed out just from a view from a window in France. And you can, I mean, you can actually make out the windows and whatnot of the stuff. And it is online just at time.com 100 photos. So either way, it's some really neat stuff. I'm going to skip to my cookbook really super fast. Marbled, swirled, and layered. This caught my eye just because of the luscious looking cover. But what, what's nice about this is that he'll give you the recipe. This is by Ir Irvin Lynn, who is, um, actually started out in graphic design and marketing, but has always loved baking. Um, is a photographer as well. He didn't do these photographs, but he knows you know, what, how to make things look good. So what he does is give you the, the recipe and then provide all um, variations on that, which when I bake, which isn't often, or cook, I like to put my own flair on it. So I'm like, I can identify with that. But like, here's just a super gorgeous, to me this is super gorgeous picture of lavender cheesecake bars. Mm. <laughs> so that's a nice one. And then I have, I don't know if you guys know, Robert Osborne, the host on TCM, just died. And he had been putting out these books about Oscar history. So we do own 80 years at the Oscars. 85 has been published, but the library does not have that. And if he had lived another year, it would have been the edition that was 90 years at the Oscars. So he's pretty much the definitive chronicler of, of getting all those awards, all those nominations getting lots of photos from the archives of the Oscars and so forth. And then what is nice as well is all the graphics and posters and whatever. Down along the bottom of a lot of these sections, he's got, he's, he solicited quotations about movies and the Oscars from anybody and everybody. Jack Lemmon, Dorothy Malone, um, Elia Kazan, you know, they all got these little quotations that are running along the bottom. Of, of what it you know what it means to them and a neat thing that I found out which I I don't think I had known about Harold Lloyd also a Nebraska boy was that he was one of the original members that created the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences so that's gonna be it's heavy you get a workout as well as enjoy it and then I have one minute till bedtime which is poems for kids they're new poems by established children's writers. Ken Nesbitt is the editor, and he um, had a two-year stint as the Poetry Foundation's Children's Poet Laureate recently. But these are just quick little poems to read to your kids or grandkids or for yourself, accompanied by cute little drawings. And they're just on different topics, about bedtime, about um, school, about different things. There's one called Lamb Said Mew, Horse Said Nay, Cow Said Moo, Dog Said Woof, Lamb Said Mew. So then Lamb's like, no, 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 that's wrong. <laughs> or there's 
God bless me. God bless the library lady who shushes and the rabbit who's making his home in our bushes. <laughs> There's PB Patty, a, a girl who's obsessed with peanut butter until her doctor cures her and then she's Patty Mac and Cheese. <laughs> And um, there's cute titles like On Adopting a Pet Elephant. Seeks quite well but cannot hide. Um, <laughs> and there's a cute one about the letters Q and U. If I could do anything at all, you know what I would do? I'd turn into a letter Q. That way I'd spend every day right next to you. <laughs> and I believe that takes me out. If you can spare just a few more moments, I'm going to hit three. I have a whole big stack of books that I'm not going to do, but I have three that I was going to do really quick. First of all, you'll notice I have a whole bunch of children's picture books. Uh, I'm not going to touch on any of them specifically except to say that what attracts me to children's picture books, and you see them all the time at the library, obviously, especially the brand new ones which are on face-out displays, is the visual elements. The writing doesn't necessarily grab me as much as beautiful art. When I was growing up, I don't remember the art of children's books being that beautiful and that gorgeous. I remember them being kids for story, our stories for kids, but I don't remember beauty being part of that. And even though I don't have kids, and at 53 years old, you'd think it'd be silly to be reading picture books, nah. some of these just jump off of the displays and are just absolutely gorgeous. I'll put them out on the table before you all leave if you are at all interested. Uh, there's just a whole series of uh, beautiful picture books that I've read. But the three that I will talk about very quickly, and then we'll wrap up, are Fastest Things on Wings by Terry Masseer. Uh, Terry Masseer is a ESL teacher in UCLA uh, who basically decided to volunteer to become a hummingbird rehabilitator. Uh, she basically had a situation where she rescued a hummingbird that had run into a vehicle and gotten covered with oil or tar or something like that, and she found somebody who was doing rehab work. She got emotionally involved with the bird and, and uh, decided to follow up with the rehabber to find out how the bird turned out, and it turns out that they were able to clean the gunk off of the bird and, and get it healed back up and released out into the wild, and she decided... That was something that she wanted to do. And so she has basically spent years now rescuing hummingbirds. Ever since 2005, she, she and her um, cohorts uh, with uh, Southern California Rescue have rescued 5,000 hummingbirds that have run into office windows and vehicles or fell out of nests because they were too immature and stuff like that. So this is her stories, her adventures of being a hummingbird rehabilitator. And they're not all nice. I mean, they're not all positive, upbeat stories because there's a lot of hummingbirds that don't survive the rehabilitation process. But there are two or three birds that sort of weave their way throughout the entire the book because they either were badly injured and had to stay with her longer than the average bird does. And so there's emotional bonds that have occurred between her um, and individual birds, and also a couple of birds that are from completely different hummingbird species that ended up bonding with each other and working together to help her rehabilitate other birds in, in her facility. So yeah, if you at all love hummingbirds, and Becky and I both do, um, I found this to be an absolutely fascinating read. Um, I bought my own copy and then convinced the library to get it, which is this is the one and only copy in the system. Second, 
This came out last year. A second volume is due to be out in May of 2017. It is The Vinyl Detective is the series. The first volume was written in dead wax. It is uh, by a British author. It is set in England featuring a unnamed hero. He, the, the writer is so crafty that you get through an entire book and realize never in this entire book has the guy's name ever been announced. It's, he's always just referred to in glancing ways. Yeah, yeah, um, but we never find out what the the hero's name is. He is basically a guy that hits all the used records, or all the the thrift shops and stuff, looking for albums. CDs are anathema. What he's looking for is vinyl albums. Uh, and he, as a joke, put together a business card calling himself the Vinyl Detective and, and has distributed it saying, um, if you're looking for something specific, I'll help you find it. Hire me. I'm, that's my specialty. Well, the plot of this first book is somebody hires him to find a rare record that he's not even ever heard of by a American jazz musician. Um, turns out there's a lot of people that want to get their hands on that record. Uh, the title written in dead wax, there's that section of wax um, vinyl right around the edge of the label that has nothing on it. That's dead wax. And somebody in the manufacturing process has given clues to a murder in this rare record in the dead wax and so people are wanting to get a hold of it. It, it he gets into s bizarre situations that almost sound like a spy novel um, because he's hired by rich people willing to throw as much money at him as it requires for him to travel the world trying to find the one or two existing copies of this particular record. So it was fascinating. There's femme fatales, there's a love story uh, and by the end of it he's kind of <laughs> left right where he started without very much money. And so the second volume is um, going to be an interesting one to pick up where that is. Um, last but not least, I've talked about Carol Burnett before. Uh, her newest book came out last fall. It's called In Such Good Company. Uh, unlike her other previous autobiographies, which were pretty much her entire career, this is reminiscing exclusively about the Carol Burnett show. And she went through... I, I normally like to recommend Carol Burnett things in audio because she does a great job of um, audio narrating her things. However, this one I have to do the opposite because she went through all 178 episodes of her show, which are not commercially available to everybody, and she took still captures from every episode. So throughout this book are stills that you've never seen before unless you actually watch those episodes when they originally aired. So the book version, as opposed to the audiobook in this particular case, has some added value to it um, because of those illustrations. But um, I'm still not done with my copy, but I've enjoyed what I've read so far. She doesn't go in chronological order. She sort of picks themes, and every few chapters she then injects remembering some significant guest star. Jim Neighbors, who always opened every first episode of every new season of her show, stuff like that. So lots of very positive memories if you grew up watching uh, or, or enjoyed watching this series. Uh, I can't recommend this book highly enough. And with that... And I'm just now noticing this is the plum and blue side of the table, and this is the red side of the table. How did that happen? <laughs> so... Um, red coat. <laughs> with that, I think we'll wrap up. Thank you for attending yet another Gear Books Talk, and you'll be back here again on, I believe it's May 8th as the next one here. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page 
at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcasts by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook.